Welcome back, Flight Suit Friday podcast listeners. Uh, I'm excited to get to talk about an awesome SAR case uh, this week. I will say that uh, I am unfortunately all by myself. I'm sitting in a room staring at four empty chairs. I think Kenny, uh, who knows what Kenny's doing. Uh, Ryan's about to have a baby. Real excited for him. And I'm the last man standing. So you only have me, which means you're going to enjoy all of my screw ups today. Um, yeah, I don't really have any news for the fleet or shout outs to go through, but I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody's enjoying uh, the winter, maybe getting some skiing in, doing some winter flying or uh for those South Pilots, uh, Miami, I hope you're enjoying the beach. But with that said, we're going to jump into an awesome case that a lot of people have seen on the news with uh, an air crew out of Detroit uh, with a rescue just before a car went over Niagara Falls. So I hope you enjoy. All right, folks, let's get started. We got uh, Detroit Air Crew on the phone. What's up, guys? How's it going? What's up, Sam? How you doing, buddy? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm sitting here on my all by myself here, but I'm excited to talk to you guys. Can uh, Hey, Chris, we'll just start with you. We'll kind of go through all four of you on the phone. If you guys can just introduce yourself, um, tell me a little bit about yourself, where, you, where you've been in the Coast Guard. I don't know what your favorite color is, something cool. And uh, just to give our listeners an idea of what you're like. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is uh, Lieutenant Chris Monticelli. Uh, I graduated from the Academy back in 2012. Uh, from the Academy, I went over to the Coast Guard Cutter Cypress down in Pensacola. Nice. Did about 18 months there. Yeah, dude, it was great. Uh, went straight from there to flight school, so didn't even move. Just walked across the brow to the liaison office to check into flight school. Uh-huh. Uh, upon leaving flight school, I got the honor of serving in Air Station San Francisco with yourself and Kenny yeah, yep. for five wonderful years. It was great. Uh, from San Fran, I then came to Detroit where I'm now the AEO here. Yeah, been here about almost two years now. Favorite color is orange. And I think I'm the only one drinking here. Oh, ex- dry January. You so, got to do it for yeah. all of us. Yeah, dry January has been going on for way too long for me now. What do you What do you got, Chris? I got ourselves a little Lugganita, a little something-something, so kind of going back to our glory days of San Fran. Yeah. Not not Kenny level of 8%, but I got a 7.5%, so we're good. Oh, nice. I hope you got a couple of those lined up, because I hear you got yeah, a harrowing one story. For, <laughs> one for each of you boys. Okay, so good. don't worry. Awesome. Welcome, Chris. Uh, we'll go with you next, Jake. What's going on? Hey, how you doing? Uh, Jake Wurzinak, a little bit myself. I was 2015 Academy grad. Wasn't smart enough to go to flight school right away, so I elected to go to a boat. I was on the Coast Guard Cutter Diligence uh, out of North Carolina in Wilmington, Dilly Dilly. Uh-huh. Got picked up nice. for flight school on the third try, um, and then straight to Detroit was my number one pick out of flight school. Sweet. How long you been there for? I've been in Detroit now for two and a half years. Oh, and uh, also my favorite color is battery charge blue. Ooh, that's a nice one. I don't know what that is, but <laughs> it sounds cool. I like that. <laughs> uh, stoked to have you on here, Jake. Uh, who else we got? John, you out there? Yeah. Uh, AMT2, John Finnerty. I uh, got in the Coast Guard back in 2010. I was on a cutter, U.S. Coast Guard cutter Mellon out of Seattle for four years. 
after high school, I went to Alpat up in Kodiak, and uh-huh. I was there for six years. Whoa. And I've been in Detroit for almost two years now. You a uh, big Alaska fan? You try and extend? It sounded like up there. Oh, I love it. Yeah. If I could just live out the rest of my life, there, that'd be great. <laughs> Dude, good for you, man. I know there's there's always kicking and screaming from some people going up there, but I feel like a lot of people oh, yeah. go up there and they come back saying it was amazing. Yeah, no, the uh, detailer told me I was not allowed to get any more extensions, so <laughs> I'm good now. <laughs> where, where are you from originally, John? Uh, I grew up in um, both split time between Idaho and Oregon. Okay, nice. Well, welcome, man. It's great to have you here. Um, Darian, you're the last one up. Obviously, the uh, uh, the highlight of this this case, or at least I'm going to say so. What's going on, dude? Hey, sir. Good afternoon. Uh, Darian Duryea here, AFT2. Uh, my journey in the Coast Guard has been pretty unique. I was also part of the great class of 2015 at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. <laughs> no way. But during, my, during my third class year, I actually left the academy, and uh, I had a meeting with Rear Admiral Stowe's at the time, and he talked about my options and told her I didn't want to lose the Coast Guard. So I went to the mighty Coast Guard Cutter Eagle, and I lived and worked aboard for a few months while EPM decided what they were going to do mm-hmm. because no one had ever gone from cadet to ASP before. Yeah. You're the so first they, I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. They came back. They said, all right, you got to go to Cape May. So two years after being in the Coast Guard already and being sworn in on our day, back to boot found camp. Myself a few weeks later on the bus playing to Cape May and getting off the bus, the instructor, or the CCs, they, they knew my name. So they, they pushed me to the best that I could be. And after leaving Cape May, I went to the Coast Guard Cutter Boutwell in San Diego, California for about a year doing all the South Pass stuff. Yeah. And went to A school in 2014, left A school and went to Air Station Clearwater. I was there for four and a half years. And now I've been here in Detroit coming up on three years. Man, that's a, that's a cool path. So, um, obviously I would have trouble taking orders from Jake then. You guys are classmates back in the day. <laughs> we were, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, dude, that's wild. Then you guys are on the same case together. Who would have thought that that would have happened, you know, years down yeah, the road. Pretty, pretty unique. Wild. Well, um, yeah, I'll just start slinging questions at you guys. First off, how's Detroit? What do you guys think of Detroit? Cold. Yeah. yeah <laughs> how how uh, cold is it? Well, today's a warm street. We got 40 degrees, but the last couple of days it's been in the teens and 20s. So uh, a little abnormal temperatures here right now. But no, it's awesome up here. Different in uh, AOR, different kind of flying up here. I, I will say when I transferred here, I honestly thought there were more hills in Michigan, but there's not. It's like flying around in Alabama. Really? It's very flat. Yeah. 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 So, uh, no, it's awesome though. It's definitely, definitely unique in the sense of covering the different lakes. And it's not always, I know like on the coastal units, it's, you pick up the ocean and fly north or south and you'll be fine. Here you don't really have that. So it kind of creates some different challenges and having to navigate a little bit more, kind of like what we did in the, our case just to get over to Niagara. So yeah, no, though, a lot of fun get to the, go land in the snow and do fun stuff like that. So yeah. How often do you guys do, um, ice rescues or, you know, winter rescues? Like obviously we're going to talk about one, but is that a norm for you guys? I would say we probably do two to three, uh, like ice related rescues a year. Um, it's kind of like the thing is all the boats come out of the lake in the wintertime here. So, once everything freezes out, we're really the only people on call. Yeah. Unless the citizens can have an airboat or something or their ice gifts. 
So that's when we get a lot of our major star um, and not a lot of the pool, pool floaties like during the summer. Yeah. Um, but no, it, it, it prevents or presents some interesting challenges. But yeah, yeah we get about yeah, two or three probably solid ice cases a year. Uh, John or Darren, have you guys had any of those cases? Um, this was the second one I've had here. I guess actual star cases are kind of rare here. Okay. It's just, um, mostly searching for pool floaties or stuff. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) A whole lot of that, or just because of the station or small boat presence on the lakes, they're always there first. And obviously this last case we had was in Niagara and we do get launched out that weighs quite a bit and somebody always makes it there before we do. So, okay. This is different, I guess, in that scenario. Other than that, I've had one other case here, and it was uh, a boat aground taking on water off uh, this like kind of small outcropping and uh, down off of uh, Toledo, actually. Yeah. And uh, that, that's, uh, yeah, prior to this, that's all my SAR experience in the lakes, aside from just flying search patterns on life jackets. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that happens a lot up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Darren, do you guys have a program in the swimmer shop that you train for, uh, like snow, ice, swift water rescue there? We do. We do have a local, uh, training program. Uh, we're actually starting to get ice on the lakes already. And we actually have a few flights out right now. They're doing dual cover for some ice training. So it's, it's already ramping up. We're getting ready to go up to actually Traverse city, AOR, mm-hmm. a little bit colder, more snow up there. Uh, to hit up some of the inland lakes to do ice disembarkment, right? So yeah, it, it being in D9 on a 65, I, I think we're the only ones left that are actually doing the ice disembarkment in the fleet. Uh, so it's a really great opportunity to be stationed up here in D9. And it's with the ice, it's unique, right? Freshwater. Um, I mean, the biggest thing coming from Clearwater as soon as I got here in the summer of 2019 was, dang, actually have to kick and and because there's no buoyancy right with the salt so you're just sinking like a rock and and mm-hmm. you know we get a lot of drownings up here unfortunately folks get get in the water they think it is the ocean but they uh they can't float as well yeah i um, actually didn't think about that that's a great point yeah yeah but uh i was fortunate to have a ice rescue case actually february last year um three canadians we do a lot of Canadian search and rescue partnered mm. with them Yeah, and, um, two different locations. Folks went out too far, the ice cracked and created a river basically in between the ice shelf and we were stuck out there. Couldn't get back. So we went out and did, uh, three direct deployments to the ice. Yeah. So uh, I am completely unfamiliar. You know, those are like the, the EPs that I never read when I'm looking at the dash one. Cause I, you know, I don't, I don't fly up there, but what is like, what is the swimmer disembarkment on the ice? Like, what do you guys do? Or, and then do you guys cut holes in ice or do you jump in or how does that, how does that work? So if the ice disembarkment will typically go down first, um, we'll make it like a direct deployment to the ice, but we'll bring an ice auger with us and we'll actually auger through the ice and we need 12 inches of thickness in order to land the aircraft on the ice. Okay. So, as long as we have those 12 inches, we're good to go. We'll come back up and we'll get set up for the ice disembarkment. And uh, it's, it's pretty crazy experience getting to get light on the skids. And uh, we actually get three taps, but we're literally just stepping out on the ice and we make it into a cantonary hoist. And uh, it's, it's pretty unique. So you, you step out and walk out on the ice while attached to the hoist cable and just kind of walk to where the people are? Correct. For an ice disembarkment. Yep. No. And if we had... 
if we had a like lot of survivors, they could actually grab the cable and use that as a guide to walk back towards the aircraft. No way. Yeah, I just assumed that, hey, the ice is thick enough, I'm going to come off. But, I mean, that makes sense. You got a safety line then. Right. Um, anybody ever fall through? I haven't, no. That's good. So we, carry, we carry ice balls with us for the swimmers. That way, if we do fall through, we can extricate ourselves first or... Obviously, if it's if it's bad enough, they can come overhead for the EP and pluck us out. Yeah, uh, Chris or Jake, it, what's the difference for you guys landing on ice? Is there anything different than you know just doing a normal landing to a runway? Besides not trying to break through, I guess. Well, here's the thing: uh, never done it. Never uh, done it. Okay. Uh, no, never <laughs> done it. I've done snow landings, which uh, those are fun, dealing with the whiteout and the cloud and all that good stuff. But never landed on the ice here. Um, so hopefully this winter we can, uh, get an opportunity to do that. So yeah. what about you, Jake? Yeah. Same experience for me. Uh, ice hasn't been thick enough, thick enough for us to be able to land on it. Um, our local org man, it's 10 inches for you to be able to touch down on the ice with the uh, collective still in. So light on the skids. Um, and that's what they're actually going down today. Yeah. To do. It's finally thick enough. But last, uh, winter, the lakes actually didn't freeze over. It was a little bit warmer. And the first winter I was here, um, same thing. The lakes didn't completely freeze over. Yeah. I didn't think about that. You're totally dependent on the weather um, to go out and land. That's that's important. Yeah, I know that I think we're sending up a pilot or two to you guys in the next couple of weeks to do some, just to get some training from your unit and uh, potentially write a chapter for the SAR TTP about landing in the snow and landing on the ice because you guys are obviously the experts up there. Yeah, hundred percent. We are the go-to experts. We know everything about snow and ice. <laughs> you sound you sound very confident, Chris. You sound very confident. 100%. He's uh, halfway through that second beer now. Yeah, no, I know, dude. He's crushing. Hey, how do you guys maintain uh, your proficiency in the winter time, though? Because you just told me all the boat, boats get pulled out. Yeah. So basically, uh, every year we plan a proficiency hoisting trip. Um, it's basically almost like a. Um, DLQ Palooza or those AI Paloozas nowadays where uh, we just send a couple crews down and they basically fly through two to three times a day with every boat they possibly can to get some hoisting proficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in years past, they've always done Destin um, due to some logistics with COVID and whatnot. Uh, last year we did it at Air Station Savannah. Nice. Um, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately this year we can't go there because of their issues with their air fact. Uh, so they don't have the extra space for us. So I think the game plan, actually, I know the game plan is actually to come visit you guys down in Mobile and uh, do some proficiency with you all, you know, get some sim time with you guys, uh, uh, go out and hoisting with uh, Solomon. Can't wait to do that. It's great. Um, And then, you know, I I hear you guys need a little proficiency down there for your Delta IP. So we got like Jake going down and maybe getting a couple check rides. So it's going to be a great opportunity to work with you all and, uh, get some more proficiency in our part because um, another thing we deal with up here is like kind of similar in San Fran during the wintertime, you get those icing layers that drop down. So our incident proficiency uh, dwindles during the wintertime because you can't really go do it IFR flights. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, we're stoked to have you guys down here. We'll make sure the galley has plenty of tater tots when you get here. We love those tots, dude. Dude, who doesn't? Um, 
All right. Well, enough beating around the bush. I want to hear, and I think the listeners want to hear, actually, there's only one listener. It's my mom, but I think she'll want to hear about uh, this awesome case you guys did. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me, tell me about the case. Where, uh, where were you guys at? When did you get the call? Uh, so basically we were getting ready to go do an RT2, uh, one of the last RT2s of the season. And we were literally, I think we were legitimately about to taxi out and, uh, our OWS, uh, upstairs who takes in all the calls said, Hey guys, you potentially getting launched for a car in the river in Niagara. I'm like, Oh, all right. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. Um, typical mindset usually, okay. It's all the way over in Niagara, Buffalo. We'll get halfway there and probably get to sit down. And this is one thirty in the afternoon of our duty day. Um, but we're like, okay, uh, sounds good. Uh, weather was beautiful here, clear skies, beautiful day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember doing a quick check on my EFB, the weather in route and everything was VFR looked beautiful. Uh, so we elected, you know what, let's just start heading that way because it is an hour long transit, uh, direct to Buffalo. So, you know what, we'll just be prudent. We'll take off, head that way. Chances are we'll get stood down in route and mm-hmm. then come home. So we got the call, uh, they told us potential, but stand by to try to figure stuff out. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to take off and start heading that way. So that's what we did. Uh, about 15 minutes into the flight, I think they're like, yeah, we got a confirmed car in the Niagara River. Uh, possible two people in the car, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And they didn't say it was near the waterfalls. They just said it was in the river near a cliff. <laughs> so like, All right, sounds, sounds good. Um, so we're proceeding on. Um and we're getting details as we go along. But uh, the first first challenge was getting there. About halfway through the flight, midway through, uh, we start seeing some lower ceilings and some snow up ahead, some reduced visibility. So, obviously, we are all prudent aviators here, so we check our ESBs and start checking the weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everything was marginal VFR. Look great, right? We can easily fly through still 1,700-foot ceilings, like seven miles of visibility looks great. Um, this is was a lesson learned. I'll kind of jump into that real quick. Yeah. Uh, when you're in Canada, uh, your cell service on your EFB doesn't give you the radar um, oh, in full yeah. flight. And we didn't have a Stratus with us. Yeah. So I couldn't get any radar imaging. So literally the way I was able to get the uh, kind of an idea that a snowstorm was coming through was watching the dots on my EFB starting to turn from blue to red to pink. Um, so I was kind of tracking those. And I think once we hit the snowstorm, it was probably 1500 foot ceilings, three to four miles of visibility. I'm like, okay, this isn't bad. Mm-hmm. We'll keep on going guys. We're trucking along. We can still see the road. We can still see obstacles in front of us in good ways. We'll monitor. And that's where the CRM started kicking in. We started coming up with, uh, out routes and like, Hey, if we go in Burton, this is what we're going to do. Um, and that life was happy, right? Still, still marginal weather, nothing crazy. Yeah, Continue you, on. You guys are, you said halfway to Buffalo at this point and you're starting yeah, to hit the snow. Buffalo. Okay. And you're yeah, going to so, get gas at Buffalo or what was your plan? No. So we, we had it. Luckily we fueled up all the way when we took off our T2 because also being the prudent pilots we were, we were uh, getting our mins done. So we took on plenty of fuel to do lots <laughs> of mins and get a nice 2.5 training flight, right? I like how you're qualifying yeah. every statement you say. <laughs> I know, right? Isn't it great? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we know I actually took off with a lot of fuel. We were at max weight. So we had plenty of fuel to get on scene. I think when we did the math, we had 20 minutes of on scene time, uh, roughly when we took off. Okay. So 
we were just at least going to get there and see what was going on. Uh, and the Niagara Airport's three miles from that location, so it would be an easy place to hop over and get gas if we needed it. Right. Um, but if you're not familiar with the transit, basically, if you drew a direct line from Detroit to Buffalo, yeah. it's straight across the Canadian Peninsula there. Okay. So that, the entire flight was over land. Um, I gotcha now. Okay, yeah, yeah I'm, look, so, I'm looking at it on my iPad. I see it. Yeah, so it was pretty much straight over land. I guess you can cut over the lake, but based on the weather here and kind of what we were seeing, that's why we chose to go over land. And at that point, we were pretty much committed to flying over land because it would be just as dangerous to fly south to pick up the lake and just fly back north up into the storm, you know? So do so, you guys have to do, uh, Jake, do you have to do a lot of coordinating with uh, Canada to get through their airspace or is it pretty simple? No, most of it's uh, VFR, so you can fly all the way through. And we have uh, some MOUs in place that allows us, uh, with our company squawk codes, IFF, that we can fly through the ADAs and won't get intercepted by a CBP or anything. So we can just fly direct, and we put up the Canadian VFR channel, and luckily we didn't have to talk to anyone because the weather was pretty bad, so nobody else was out there flying. Yeah, that's nice. I was wondering how you guys did that since you guys go across the ADAs all the time. All right, yeah, heading that way. Yeah, so we're heading that way. So we're about halfway in London. Weather starts getting really bad. And then, all right, this snowstorm's getting a little bit worse. Visibility's coming down. Still probably like a mile of visibility. Ceilings start dropping, nothing crazy. Mm-hmm. Continue on, uh, keep talking, have our outs. And about three quarters of the way there is when we that snowstorm actually made pretty decent landfall. And it dropped to about 600-foot ceilings and a half mile of visibility. Yikes. Uh, which is pretty, pretty scary, especially when you're flying over land and you're flying through large windmill farms. And I, I kid you not, like it was pretty surreal in the fact like you were flying and then all of a sudden you would just see the base of the windmill start appearing through the fog or the snow. And then all of a sudden three massive blades spinning as you got a little bit closer. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we, the way we navigated that because, uh, on the VFR charge, it just shows the windmill form, not direct location. Uh, we picked up a road that went eastbound and flew the road at about two to 300 feet, uh, 70 to 80 knots. And, uh, yeah, and just cruised that road knowing that we would not hit a windmill on a road. Are you guys, <laughs> was this, uh, were you an attempt to get to London, that airport in Canada and land? No, this was, this was all just VFR, trying to get VFR straight to Buffalo. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, because at that point we, at that point we still didn't know any details on the case. We just knew there was possibly two people in a car in the river near Niagara. Yeah, um, had no idea. So obviously, it's all that warranted risk stuff, thirty-seven ten rules um, that we were kind of going off of. Um, so we kept proceeding through, yeah, uh, pushing through. Well, I'm just curious, Chris, um, Darian, and uh, John. What do you guys, what do you guys think about that transit in the back? Um, so it, it was a lot different, uh, after coming from Kodiak, I feel like almost every flight we're on is VFR sometimes or yeah, not, not VFR. Yeah. You're going, uh, in the goo quite a bit is what they call it up there. Yeah. And just a lot, a lot of flying down the Aleutian chain, especially in the bearing. It's like you expect to just not be able to see anything sometimes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the star cases I experienced were also in those conditions. So it was similar to that, but coming down to sub 600 feet with these massive windmills out there, and especially you expect everything around here to be flat, which it is. 
but then having to actually worry about radio towers and windmills is not something I'd ever experienced. So mm-hmm. that was pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, it was just, everybody was just keeping their eyes filled and, uh, had the light mech GPS in the back and that'll mark, uh, it should mark all the windmills or towers you have coming up. And, uh, but I mean, the road is really just kind of our saving grace. I feel like just heading straight eastbound on that. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully for that. Was that how you felt too in the back, Darian? Yes, sir. Yeah. These, these two guys up front did an incredible job navigating up there. It's uh, like Mr. Monchelli said, once the, the ceiling and the vis- and visibility started coming down, they got real, real quick. Yeah. And we had great CRM and we had our out like we talked about and, uh, yeah, we saw this road and we're like, well, I guess this is our only option here. Let's go for it. So yeah. it uh, worked out really well and I uh, got to hand it to these guys. Yeah, that sounds that sounds sketchy to say the least. Um, were you guys, uh, Chris, were you flying in that or Jake, were flying in that the whole way, all the way over to Niagara? Jake, Jake was doing the impressive piloting skills. I was doing his navigating skills and uh, coordinating with sector. Yeah. So I think it was about what, 20 minutes from getting to Buffalo. We finally got some pictures of what actually was happening. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when we got pictures of a car in the Niagara river. The picture still didn't show how close it was to the falls. Um, it just was showing that it was in some pretty heavy rapids. Uh, still didn't know how many people were in there. Uh, still thought there were two people, um, and didn't know their conditions. So that's why we kind of proceeded on. Um, and that's where we started talking about like what we were going to do now that we had some visual aids and what was going on. Um, but our biggest focus at that time was just getting through that snowstorm to get there. That was step one. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, like Dee said, it was, that was probably the heaviest amount of CRM I have ever used before, uh, talking and coming up with game plans about every 10 seconds on like what was going to happen if we went inadvertent. Uh, being committed and talking about icing layers and if we went to the clouds and all that good stuff. Yeah, where was um, the icing uh, layer at when you guys were flying out there? The surface. Oh, geez. So had you, did you have any uh, second uh, takes about wishing you went over water on the way out to Buffalo? I don't think so. Uh, I do wish we had a Stratus, but I think it, it may have, been able to pick up on the actual radar image a little sooner. Right. Uh, but I mean, it is what it is. We, we use our tools and, uh, kind of seeing weather reports and hearing weather reports to kind of piece together what was happening. Um, and it wasn't like an instant thing. Like it was pretty gradual as we were putting out, going out that way. So it's not like we were flying along and all of a sudden just dropped off. We kind of knew it was coming, uh, coming. So, uh, we were able to kind of plan for it accordingly. Mm-hmm. But I would I would echo what John said. That flight mech GPS was phenomenal, and the fact that they'd be like, "Okay, here's a a windmill coming up," and we would see it pop up, and that way we could kind of confirm where we were and making sure we were safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> incredible how how much uh, CRM can help any crew really getting through any kind of case. That's awesome, guys. So in terms of icing too, I mean, you know, it's a 65, we have no de-ice capability. So yeah. John and I, we were constantly looking at the hoist boom or the OAT probe on the greenhouse, with just door handle, looking for any signs of icing accumulation. And fortunately we weren't seeing anything too terrible on the way out there. Yeah. But, uh, 
Yeah, I'm excited to hear about that. So you guys got pictures that came in. Um, I'm assuming you guys started formulating some sort of plan. What was what was the chat in the in the aircraft? Everything you could think of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right. How are we gonna do this? Uh what are we gonna do if the car moves? Like what are we how are we gonna put D down? I think the obvious thing that we all immediately agreed on was DD was not getting off of the hook whatsoever. Um, I think we mentioned, uh, John, DD and I all have that bird surface qualification. Um, so we kind of talked about not necessarily bird surface maneuvers, I guess, but more so kind of the terminology as far as like keeping positive contact, making sure we were plumb just in case something happened. We had a, it wasn't like pulling in a bunch of cable, get DD away, uh, making sure if he lost his footing that he didn't have a bunch of cable and could get like pulled away and jerk, you know? Mm-hmm. So kind of use some vert surface terminology to kind of come up with some kind of game plan as far as like getting them to the car, talking about that insertion point. Um, I think the only person you've even a horse, John, I, I think DD is the only one that's been a horse. So we were kind of just leading on our experience in, uh, with that, like in Kodiak or in San Fran with cliffs and kind of talking about stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you found it. It sounds like you guys found it pretty helpful with the case. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, the great thing about a horse, right. Is that it gets us to think outside of the box. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we were doing in this scenario. None of us have ever trained for this type of situation. Right. And we just put all our heads together and figured out how to get this done. The most, safe way yeah there i mean there's there's no codified um swift water rescue training that the coast guard has um now we just we did get some training from priority one air rescue for some pilots in the last year and some flight mechs and swimmers and they're putting a chapter together in that sar ttp about swift water and i I think i've heard of swimmers going to this training before too but you kind of had to figure that one on the fly didn't you right yeah i have no swift water experience and after the case talking with, with some of the guys and um, especially AC2 Juan Gomez up in Air Station Sitka. Mm-hmm. He's a really great friend. and They actually went to a Swiftwater school out in Sacto and it was all unit funded. They had, I think, about like 12 guys or so from different West Coast shops that all went to this and mm-hmm. did this uh, land-based team Swiftwater program and they had an incredible time and while I was telling me they learned so much about like hydrodynamics and like the way cars are sitting in the water and sad face and happy face like all these different terms that Swiftwater folks know and it would have been incredible to at least have a little bit of glimpse of knowledge to apply that to this scenario right so uh, you know fortunately everything went okay and we were able to bring the woman home for her family but if that car moved if i got pinned even opening the car door changes the way that the water is moving on the car that could have dislodged it and it it could have gone south real quick yeah so Um, let's um i want you guys to paint the picture again for us And, and just as a side note for anybody listening if you just look up coast guard rescue niagara falls you can see the video of this rescue but um you guys make it through the snowstorm. You get on scene. What do you see? Where Where's that car? What does it look like in the water? What was the oh shit so, factor going on? 
Yeah, so we get on the scene, and uh, actually, we beat um, a Canadian helicopter by five minutes on scene. They had launched the Cormoran from uh, Trenton yeah. uh, to get out there, and we we beat them, and they were 30 minutes closer than us. So, wow. yeah, you know, uh, no big deal there. Uh, USA. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so actually it created some difficulty just getting into that space. So if you look at a chart, uh, Niagara Falls is in a restricted area. Yep. And just adjacent to that restricted area is Niagara uh, Airport's airspace, right? Mm-hmm. So the Cormoran actually got into Niagara's airspace before we did. And because they were under special VFR conditions, only one aircraft was allowed in their airspace and they were it. So they basically told us, no, we couldn't get into their airspace. So that was fun. Uh, and then, so we, then we had that restricted area and just because of the essence of time, uh, basically said, tower, we are going into the restricted area. We have possible people in a car by the falls. Um, so we're going in, if you have any issues, just let us know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just went, I mean, that's, that's the best we could do trying to mitigate comms on the radio and noise and clutter and whatnot. So that's what we did. We just went straight into the restricted area. Um, did a, I think we did like a circle just to try and try and navigate that situation. But uh, got on scene. Actually, the first thing we saw was a big black rock that we thought was the car. That was on the horseshoe fall side. And then we quickly realized there was no one around. And we looked over and then we that's when we saw hundreds of people standing by the American side falls. So we basically slid on over and we located the car. I think reports are saying between 100 and 150 feet from the edge of the waterfalls. So are you serious? 150 feet from the edge of the falls? Yep. How the heck did that thing not go over? No idea. No idea. Uh, All we know is get in the water in the first place. Yeah, that's 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 a big question, right? That's a million dollar question, Sam. But uh, I'm not paid to ask it. So I know. (laughs) I know. But uh, what we did learn was at, the car apparently got wedged there. But a cool thing that they can do is Sector reached out to the Niagara Falls Water Authority there, mm-hmm. and they are able to divert the flow of the river to reduce the flow over the falls. So that's what they did. Wow. And they brought the water level down like three to four feet. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's, it's huge impact, right? Uh, but we got on scene there, found the car. Weather was really crummy, uh, blowing snow, probably quarter mile to half mile visibility. Like we could barely see the buildings on the other side of the Canyon there. Mm-hmm. Um, winds pretty gusty out of the West, low ceilings. Uh, and then the newest factor that kind of crept up on us is, uh, because of those, the power of those waterfalls, it creates a gigantic mist plume at the top of the, uh, the waterfall there. And, uh, so now that presented some icing conditions for us, hoisting near a mist plume while we're trying to get this, uh, person out of the car. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's when we got a scene, what look ha- at the car. What happened up? with the Canadians? Were they, did you guys talk to them on the radio and say, Hey, we got this or were you, was there any discussion between the two aircraft? So I think it was, yeah, there was. And I think it was like right before we got on scene, I called sector and I was like, Hey, I don't want to step on feet here. Who has the hierarchy and picking, like conducting the hoist. And they came back and said, you guys do. Uh, so we got on scene first. They were shortly behind us and they came over the radio like, Hey guys, we got a sawzall for you if you need it. 
Yeah. Like, cool, stand by. Yeah. <laughs> and then we just uh, went on from there. Um, but yeah, that's when we kind of just pulled into a hover. Uh, we elected a higher hover to stay pretty much level with the mist. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't want to stay below it cause we didn't want that water coming down over top of the rotor wash. We stayed level with it and kind of high enough where we had a little bit of flying room if something were to go wrong. Um, so we elected a higher hover. Um, at that point that's when we just opened the door and talked and said, DD, you're going, you want to go down? Yeah. All right, cool. Where yeah. do you want to go? Yeah. And, and we, we talked about it and we're like, we just got to get him down to the car and basically see what's going on. So he can make a judgment call of how to get in. Uh, he had an idea of how to, that's why he took his ax down. He was going to break a window, but he'll get into how he got into the car here in a second. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, that's, that's basically how things started. And, uh, I got to sh- give a shout out to my co-pilot here, Chick Warsiniak, man, the best co-pilot I could ask for on this case. Uh, Hashtag wiper boy. Um, <laughs> and all kidding aside, like, honestly, he, the, by the end of the hoisting, like our windows were freezing over from the ice of the, the falls from the mist. Mm-hmm. And if he had not been so Johnny on the spot, like getting those wipers going, it would have frozen over 10 times faster. So as, as funny as it is, I am serious. Like he was a God's gift, wipe clean off my uh, windshield. Yeah. Just saying. Hashtag wiper boy. That's and he also did a phenomenal job coordinating everything for us. I so I want to ask. So I know what your reaction is now, Chris. But for the other three guys, what what was the initial thought that was going through your head when you got there and you saw this car jammed into the river and 150 feet from Niagara Falls with terrible weather? How are we getting in there? Yeah. 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 I just. Like he said, I've, I have i don't know the last time a coaster crew deployed or put a swimmer down in swift water scenario. I'd never heard of it. It's not something I don't think we've ever even talked about before. Yeah. Um, and then just having a car there that close to the edge of the falls, I mean, my first thought was like, that, that can go wrong in a large number of ways, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, step me through your uh, process then. What was the conversation that you guys were having? Um, we're, we're all pretty like, I guess, burst surface experience from previous units. It's not, you know, here you have to have burst surface to do it. And, uh, Michigan is, it's like Iowa, but with more water. So, <laughs> um, so we, me and Dee kind of talked about in the back, we talked about up front, what I thought would be best, like what we all kind of came to is if you got down to one side of the car, kind of treat it like a vert surface scenario, uh, get him positive contact in there. And then it's kind of actually really close to how he executed it. When he was actually able to get down to the car, as soon as he got down to that side, I calmed the plane just right over it. So it pulled that positive contact with the cable, pull him into it, suck him into it just so he wouldn't get dragged back as soon as he hit the water. And that worked out pretty well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, once he was down there, like it was pretty much the, the DD show and, I guess it was a lot more stable down there. He didn't get pulled out right away, and I just saw him man muscle that door open, and I was like, "All right, maybe I could give him some slack down there." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Didi, how was the uh, how, how was the water current? Was it trying to rip you away from the car down towards the falls? It honestly, sir, in the moment, right? I mean, especially being at Ahars, we go through all those environmental factors and we learn how to how to deal with that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, 
I kind of blocked all of that out and I was really just focused on her. How was I getting in there? How are we going to do this? And I mean, there's some rough facts. I mean, approximately like 3,160 tons of water flow over Niagara Falls every second. And where we were at the American Falls, that's approximately 75,750 gallons of water. Every second. second. Going by by you. I think it's like 32 feet per second of water or the speed of the water rushing through that area. Yeah. So it's like 23 miles an hour. So it was, uh, it was cooking and we knew exactly. It was like, well, we're not going to break this windshield. If we break the windshield, that game over and car's going to move. Yeah. We, we saw that the driver's side rear window was open and the trunk was open and we decided it wasn't a smart idea to try and get through the car. So our only option was either the driver's side window or the passenger side window. So brought my ax with me and that was my plan on how to get in there. Cause I figured right off the bat that there's no way that I'm getting this door open. Yeah. It's just based off what we were seeing there and got down Again, these guys did an incredible job, like like literally pinpoint hoist in those types of conditions. Mm-hmm. And John was able to come the aircraft and get me in on that passenger side. And I tried the door handle and luckily it was unlocked. Yeah. And I was able to get the door open and wedge myself in between the door and the frame of the car itself and get access to her and start, uh, start getting her hooked up in the quick drop and, I put the cross strap on as well. And she was unconscious once I got to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we had to get her out of there and warranted risk. Like nobody knew the status of her and we knew that hypothermia was going to play a part in this. And we had pre-briefed to do a short haul because literally the entire Niagara Falls fire department and New York state park police were there. Right, and her best chance of survival was was with those folks right there. And then, instead of flying another five to ten minutes to a to a ER, so got her all hooked up. I got on the radio. I called Easy up, as well as giving the radio voice signal. And mm-hmm. John uh, carefully got us out of there and caught the aircraft over. And that's what we did. We put her down and handed her off and got back up in the aircraft and unbeknownst to me while this was going on, like Mr. Monshelly was saying, like they were icing up real fast. I think, sir, you said you couldn't see out of the cockpit door. Yeah, I can see like that. You know how you look to the right when you're hoisting? Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine like going into your car in the early morning with frost and you know how you can't see out your car window. Oh, That's yeah. basically like you could, you could see a very blurry image, but there was nothing to really pick up. My windshield was clear but Jake's side, even with the windshield and the ice on his side, was pretty much frozen over on both both uh, the windshield and his door window. So it was building up pretty fast. Were you getting any buildup on the on the blades, or do you see any power fluctuations? Uh, not really. Um, that was like the other thing Jake did a really great job of was monitoring. He could probably talked about it a little bit more, but we talked about that as a crew. Like, hey guys, we're pulling. I think we pulled nine point when we pull into a hover. And basically the conversation was if we start seeing that tick up at any time, we know that's some icing building up. Right. Uh, so we'll reassess at that time. But uh, Jake just did a great job coordinating and 
monitoring that for us so that we could focus on the hoist and stay focused on right. keeping DD safe. Right. And before we even got into the hoist, right, going through the hoist breeze, what were we going to do if we had an engine failure? What were we actually going to do? We talked about landing in the park, right? Yeah, we were going to slide, depending on the scenario, sliding over to the right and landing in trees and hope people got out of the way. Um, flying forward, but we had a bridge to the right. We had the horseshoe falls to the left and skyscrapers ahead of us. So, uh, yeah. we, we also decided no matter what, we weren't going to shoot me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say your shearing <laughs> conversation must have been real short. Like, absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah. <laughs> he was going for a ride. Uh, right. And that was something else we talked about kind of pre week too is, you know, if this car starts to move, you guys got to be Johnny on the spot and basically create like this underway direct deployment. Right. Yeah. And my goal was just, I, that started happening. I was just going to do a physical grip and hold on for dear life and, and hope that we could get out of there. Okay. Yeah. Were you, um, uh, not going to go in the car? Was that one of your decisions? That was. And I kind of based that off of the, you know, the 3710 and, and we're, we're not supposed to go underneath the submerged vessel. Right. Um, kind of, stay on the outside so i was able to work uh from standing outside the car and never entered the car itself yeah yeah that would be sketchy going in there for sure and yeah what a combination of factors that uh probably none of you had had a chance to experience all at once um no, no. But, but a great outcome i mean you certainly yeah. you made national news that's that's for sure um yeah. and I, I think one of the things too um that kind of drove our factors to keep moving on and pressing on with the conditions was um, there were swift water shore teams mm-hmm. on on the land, but they were not able to get to it. Uh, the fire department and police department basically said that the only way anyone was going to get to this car was via aerial hoist. So that's why knowing that we were literally the only people, either us or that cormoran, we're going to be able to get this lady out. That's kind of what kind of drove us to keep pressing on, mm-hmm. uh, despite the, the kind of challenging conditions. Yeah. And, you know. and the car wasn't as stable as we thought because later that night it flipped upside down and that weekend it actually went over the fall. Right. And, uh, they haven't found it since. Really? It's gone. Yeah, um, it's broken a million pieces. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Jake, it sounds like you were the, the windshield wiper warrior uh, the whole time. How how was it from the left seat? I like that. I like warrior a little bit better than yeah. uh, wiper boy. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, you know. Someone's um, got to do it, man. Yeah, so just sitting there. I mean, the whole thing was pretty quick. We were on scene uh, for 14 minutes from on scene to depart scene and landed back in Niagara. Wow. So it was a very quick evolution um, altogether. It just worked out. Uh, good, I guess. Uh, but yeah, so like Chris was saying, monitoring the power anywhere from 8.5 to 9.0 uh, on the FLI. And we didn't creep up in power too much, but like like they were saying, my whole greenhouse and my windshield and my whole uh, door iced over. Couldn't see anything outside of it. And I was keeping everyone apprised of that. Like, hey, starting to get some ice over here on my door. Power's still good. We're still looking fine. I don't think everything's icing over yet. Because mm-hmm. that was my side of the cockpit was the one that was directly into the mist, um, just the way we were pointing for the hoist. Yeah. Had you guys discussed just landing in the parking lot of the ice and got too bad? We did, yep. yeah. Okay. 
Basically, hopefully people understand what we're doing and get the hell out of the way. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure they would. I think um, I was working in the car for what about two minutes? Yeah, it was long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, would Would you guys have changed anything that you did with that case now that you've had you know a couple months to look back on it? Take a Stratus. Take a Stratus. <laughs> yeah. It would have helped kind of understand the uh, that snowstorm a little bit better. Yeah. But as far as the way we executed and came up with game plans, and I think we did it as textbook as you can as far as including CRM and discussing everything and having those outs and kind of understanding what you're doing. I think it's like the ideal scenario that you can talk about that warranted risk discussion, right? Of being the only other available asset to do this and pushing yourselves just to the brink to make, try and save a life. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know for my end, wouldn't have done it any other way. Really. I think we did a great job and crew talked really well and, yeah. It sounds like it. What about you, John, from a flight mech perspective? Any uh, lessons learned or uh, thoughts for other flight mechs out there? Um, I definitely think it's a learning experience. And the thing is, like, no scenario will ever be the same most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I don't think I would have changed anything we did. We talked about really kind of any given scenario while we were up there and uh, how to react to just about hopefully everything that we thought could happen. And I, I think the game plan was pretty much perfect. Like he got down there and it, it went super smooth. Like I really didn't even have to con around too much once we were on scene, like maintain position. Great. You know, the pilots did really awesome. So it, it was a really quick evolution at, at the time. It felt like it was kind of maybe going on a little longer, but it always feels longer in the moment. I'm sitting there watching ice build up on the side of the aircraft. I, mm-hmm. I didn't tell anything because I su- assumed if I can see ice, that they're definitely icing up there. So, um, But it, I think given with the, the scenario we were in, I, I don't know if it, it really could have been done any better, honestly. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, uh, Darren, you got any pointers for other swimmers out there for if they ever encounter something like this? This was a unique case, but... We are evolving as an organization. We're being asked to do more things mm-hmm. that are outside of our standard scope of practice, whether it be Urban Star, Inland Star, now these swift water type rescues. Uh, so given the knowledge that we had and the procedures that we do every day, we made it work to the best of our ability. Uh, hopefully, you know, big Coast Guard as we move forward in the next couple of years, like you mentioned about that Swiftwater TTP, we're actually able to maybe create some sort of aviation Swiftwater rescue school or, uh, you know, kind of be the right lead from the front and, uh, yeah. be the best at what we can do. Uh, but yeah, that wasn't the end of it, right? So once we, once we landed, then we, uh, were IFR for hours and, we actually had to push the aircraft into the hangar and let it thaw out. That's not bad. That's not the hardest part of the whole entire case. Really? that helicopter into a hangar yeah. while there was ice on the tarmac and slipping with, uh, we uh, fueled it up. So max gas in the plane trying to push this thing. We had four people from the FBO outside helping us try and push it in. Oh my gosh. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, and we, the, the, 
hindsight, if we had to do it again, I would have parked a hundred percent differently. We parked <laughs> perpendicular to the hangar. So oh. the first step of figuring out how to turn this helicopter without a tow bar. Yep. Um, which again, DD is ten times bigger than Senior Chief Kirkendall and ten times stronger. So we used him as our rotational pivot point to turn the helicopter forward because he actually works legs unlike Senior Chief. Uh-huh. Uh, I like that. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was quite the hurdle was turning that helicopter and then pushing it inside uh, and letting it defrost for. Uh, a while while uh, the storm blew over. Yeah, did you guys just wait the wait the storm out and then fly back to Detroit, or were you back in crap weather trying to get home? No, we waited the storm out and then basically flew uh, VFR back that night okay. um, and got to see all those windmills uh, perfectly clear. Um, they look spectacular. Yeah. The stars were great that night. You know, did you guys yeah. have your goggles in the plane. We did. So oh, good for one you. of the rule, yeah, one of those rules of thumbs in Detroit is. Uh, you don't put your goggles away until 3:45 at duty release because the exact instance like this where you get launched to Buffalo at duty release time and guess what you're going yep and you're flying back at night so no we all had our goggles worked out well um, but yeah getting that helicopter into that hangar was a daunting task yeah that doesn't sound easy I mean <laughs> well guys this is an incredible case and um, fantastic job well done by all of you. Um, any other, any other tidbits you want to pass out to the listeners or things that we may have missed? Uh, things I didn't ask about for this case. No, I think, uh, I think we really covered everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. well, I really appreciate it guys. And, uh, thanks for taking the time out of your busy day up there in Detroit and sharing the, sharing the tricks of the trade with the rest of the fleet. I know I got a lot out of it and I no. hope I don't have to do a rescue 150 feet from Niagara Falls in the future. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully no one does. Right. Any, anything for you, Sam and Kenny and, and the listeners to this podcast. We're here for you guys. Well, I'm sure uh, our one listener in upstate New York will appreciate that. Thanks, Mona. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. All right, guys. I really appreciate it. You guys have a great rest of your day. Thanks, dude. You too. Okay. Later. Bye. Bye.